Chapter Eight of the Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olorda Equiano. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corey Samuel. The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olorda Equiano, by Olorda Equiano. Chapter Eight. The author, to oblige Mr. King, once more embarks for Georgia in one of his vessels. A new captain is appointed. They sail, and steer a new course. Three remarkable dreams. The vessel is shipwrecked on the Bahama bank, but the crew are preserved principally by means of the author. He sets out from the island with the captain in a small boat in quest of a ship. Their distress. Meet with a wrecker. Sail for Providence are overtaken again by a terrible storm, and are all near perishing. Arrive at New Providence. The author, after some time, sails from thence to Georgia, meets with another storm, and is obliged to put back and refit. Arrives at Georgia. Meets new impositions. Two white men attempt to kidnap him. Officiates as a parson at a funeral ceremony. Bids adieu to Georgia, and sails for Martinico. As I had now, by the death of my captain, lost my great benefactor and friend, I had little inducement to remain longer in the West Indies, except my gratitude to Mr. King, which I thought I had pretty well discharged, in bringing back his vessel safe, and delivering his cargo to his satisfaction. I began to think of leaving this part of the world, of which I had been long tired, and returning to England where my heart had always been. But Mr. King still pressed me very much to stay with his vessel, and he had done so much for me that I found myself unable to refuse his requests, and consented to go another voyage to Georgia, as the mate, from his ill state of health, was quite useless in the vessel. Accordingly, a new captain was appointed, whose name was William Phillips, an old acquaintance of mine. And having refitted our vessel, and taken several slaves on board, we set sail for St. Eustatia, where we stayed but a few days. And on the 30th of January, 1767, we steered for Georgia. Our new captain boasted strangely of his skill in navigating and conducting a vessel, and in consequence of this he steered a new course, several points more to the westward than we ever did before. This appeared to me very extraordinary. On the 4th of February, which was soon after we had got into our new course, I dreamt the ship was wrecked amidst the surf and rocks, and that I was the means of saving every one on board, and on the night following I dreamed the very same dream. These dreams, however, made no impression on my mind, and the next evening, it being my watch below, I was pumping the vessel a little after eight o'clock, just before I went off the deck, as is the custom, and being weary with the duty of the day, and tired at the pump, for we made a good deal of water, I began to express my impatience, and I uttered with an oath, Damn the vessel's bottom out! But my conscience instantly smote me for the expression. When I left the deck, I went to bed, and had scarcely fallen asleep when I dreamed the same dream again about the ship that I had dreamt the two preceding nights, 
at twelve o'clock the watch was changed, and, as I had always the charge of the captain's watch, I then went upon deck. At half after one in the morning, the man at the helm saw something under the lee-beam that the sea washed against, and he immediately called to me that there was a grampus, and desired me to look at it. Accordingly I stood up, and observed it for some time, but when I saw the sea wash up against it again and again, I said it was not a fish, but a rock. Being soon certain of this, I went down to the captain, and with some confusion told him the danger we were in, and desired him to come upon deck immediately. He said it was very well, and I went up again. As soon as I was upon deck, the wind, which had been pretty high, having abated a little, the vessel began to be carried sideways towards the rock by means of the current. Still the captain did not appear. I therefore went to him again, and told him the vessel was then near a large rock, and desired he would come up with speed. He said he would, and I returned to the deck. When I was upon the deck again, I saw we were not above a pistol-shot from the rock, and I heard the noise of the breakers all around us. I was exceedingly alarmed at this, and the captain having not yet come on the deck, I lost all patience, and growing quite enraged, I ran down to him again, and asked him why he did not come up, and what could he mean by all this. The breakers, said I, are round us, and the vessel is almost on the rock. With that he came on the deck with me, and we tried to put the vessel about, and get her out of the current, but all to no purpose the wind being very small. We then called all hands up immediately, and after a little we got up one end of a cable and fastened it to the anchor. By this time the surf was foaming around us, and made a dreadful noise on the breakers, and the very moment we let the anchor go the vessel struck against the rocks. One swell now succeeded another, as it were one wave calling on its fellow the roaring of the billows increased, and, with one single heave of the swells, the sloop was pierced and transfixed among the rocks. In a moment a scene of horror presented itself to my mind, such as I had never conceived or experienced before. All my sins stared me in the face, and especially I thought that God had hurled his direful vengeance on my guilty head for cursing the vessel on which my life depended. My spirits at this forsook me, and I expected every moment to go to the bottom. I determined, if I should still be saved, that I would never swear again. And in the midst of my distress, while the dreadful serfs were dashing with unremitting fury among the rocks, I remembered the Lord, though fearful that I was undeserving of forgiveness, and I thought that as he had often delivered, he might yet deliver, and calling to mind the many mercies he had shown me in times past, they gave me some small hope that he might still help me. I then began to think how we might be saved, and I believe no mind was ever like mine so replete with inventions and confused with schemes, though how to escape death I knew not. The captain immediately ordered the hatches to be nailed down on the slaves in the hold, 
where there were above twenty, all of whom must unavoidably have perished if he had been obeyed. When he desired the man to nail down the hatches, I thought that my sin was the cause of this, and that God would charge me with these people's blood. This thought rushed upon my mind that instant with such violence that it quite overpowered me, and I fainted. I recovered just as the people were about to nail down the hatches, perceiving which I desired them to stop. The captain then said it must be done. I asked him why. He said that every one would endeavour to get into the boat, which was but small, and thereby we should be drowned, for it would not have carried above ten at the most. I could no longer restrain my emotion, and I told him he deserved drowning for not knowing how to navigate the vessel, and I believe the people would have tossed him overboard if I had given them the least hint of it. However, the hatches were not nailed down and as none of us could leave the vessel then on account of the darkness, and as we knew not where to go, and were convinced besides that the boat could not survive the serfs, we all said we would remain on the dry part of the vessel, and trust to God till daylight appeared, when we should know better what to do. I then advised to get the boat prepared against morning, and some of us began to set about it, but some abandoned all care of the ship and themselves, and fell to drinking. Our boat had a piece out of her bottom near two feet long, and we had no materials to mend her. However, necessity being the mother of invention, I took some pump-leather and nailed it to the broken part, and plastered it over with tallow-grease. And thus prepared, with the utmost anxiety of mind, we watched for daylight, and thought every minute an hour till it appeared. At last it saluted our longing eyes, and kind providence accompanied its approach, with what was no small comfort to us, for the dreadful swell began to subside. And the next thing that we discovered to raise our drooping spirits was a small quay or island, about five or six miles off, but a barrier soon presented itself, for there was not water enough for our boat to go over the reefs and this threw us again into a sad consternation. But there was no alternative. We were therefore obliged to put but few in the boat at once, and, what is still worse, all of us were frequently under the necessity of getting out to drag and lift it over the reefs. This cost us much labour and fatigue, and, what was yet more distressing, we could not avoid having our legs cut and torn very much with the rocks. There were only four people that would work with me at the oars, and they consisted of three black men and a Dutch Creole sailor. And though we went with the boat five times that day, we had no others to assist us. But, had we not worked in this manner, I really believe the people could not have been saved, for not one of the white men did anything to preserve their lives, and indeed they soon got so drunk that they were not able but lay about the deck like swine, so that we were at last obliged to lift them into the boat and carry them on shore by force. This want of assistance made our labour intolerably severe, insomuch that, by putting on shore so often that day, the skin was entirely stripped off my hands. However, we continued all the day to toil and strain our exertions, 
till we had brought all on board safe to the shore, so that out of thirty-two people we lost not one. My dream now returned upon my mind with all its force. It was fulfilled in every part, for our danger was the same I had dreamt of, and I could not help looking on myself as the principal instrument in effecting our deliverance. For, owing to some of our people getting drunk, the rest of us were obliged to double our exertions. And it was fortunate we did, for in a very little time longer the patch of leather on the boat would have been worn out, and she would have been no longer fit for service. Situated as we were, who could think that men should be so careless of the danger they were in? For, if the wind had but raised the swell as it was when the vessel struck, we must have bid a final farewell to all hopes of deliverance. And though I warned the people who were drinking, and entreated them to embrace the moment of deliverance, nevertheless they persisted, as if not possessed of the least spark of reason. I could not help thinking, that if any of these people had been lost, God would charge me with their lives, which perhaps was one cause of my labouring so hard for their preservation. And indeed, every one of them afterwards seemed so sensible of the service I had rendered them, and while we were on the quay I was kind of chieftain amongst them. I brought some limes, oranges and lemons ashore, and finding it to be a good soil where we were, I planted several of them as a token to any one that might be cast away hereafter. This quay, as we afterwards found, was one of the Bahama Islands, which consist of a cluster of large islands, with smaller ones, or keys as they are called, interspersed among them. It was about a mile in circumference, with a white sandy beach running in a regular order along it. On that part of it, where we first attempted to land, there stood some very large birds, called flamingos. These, from the reflection of the sun, appeared to us at a little distance as large as men. And when they walked backwards and forwards, we could not conceive what they were. Our captain swore they were cannibals. This created a great panic among us, and we held a consultation how to act. The captain wanted to go to a quay that was within sight, but a great way off. But I was against it as in so doing we should not be able to save all the people. And therefore, said I, let us go on shore here, and perhaps these cannibals may take to the water. Accordingly we steered towards them, and when we approached them, to our very great joy, and no less wonder, they walked off one after the other very deliberately, and at last they took flight, and relieved us entirely from our fears. About the quay there were turtles, and several sorts of fish, in such abundance that we caught them without bait, which was a great relief to us after the salt provisions on board. There was also a large rock on the beach, about ten feet high, which was in the form of a punch-bowl at the top. This we could not help thinking Providence had ordained to supply us with rain-water, and it was something singular, that if we did not take the water when it rained, in some little time after it would turn as salt as sea-water. Our first care, after refreshment, was to make ourselves tents to lodge in, which we did as well as we could with some sails we had brought from the ship. We then began to think how we might get from this place, which was quite uninhabited, 
and we determined to repair our boat, which was very much shattered, and to put to sea in quest of a ship or some inhabited island. It took us up, however, eleven days, before we could get the boat ready for sea in the manner we wanted it, with sail and other necessaries. When we had got all things prepared, the captain wanted me to stay on shore, while he went to sea in quest of a vessel to take all the people off the quay. But this I refused, and the captain and myself, with five more, set off in the boat towards New Providence. We had no more than two musket-load of gunpowder with us, if anything should happen, and our stock of provisions consisted of three gallons of rum, four of water, some salt beef, some biscuit, and in this manner we proceeded to sea. On the second day of our voyage we came to an island called Obiko, the largest of the Bahama Islands. We were much in want of water, for by this time our water was expended, and we were exceedingly fatigued in pulling two days in the heat of the sun, and it being late in the evening we hauled the boat ashore to try for water, and remain during the night. When we came ashore we searched for water, but could find none. When it was dark we made a fire around us, for fear of the wild beasts, as the place was an entire thick wood, and we took it by turns to watch. In this situation we found very little rest, and waited with impatience for the morning. As soon as the light appeared we set off again with our boat, in hopes of finding assistance during the day. We were now much dejected and weakened by pulling the boat, for our sail was of no use, and we were almost famished for want of fresh water to drink. We had nothing left to eat but salt beef, and that we could not use without water. In this situation we toiled all day in sight of the island, which was very long. In the evening, seeing no relief, we made ashore again, and fastened our boat. We then went to look for fresh water, being quite faint for the want of it, and we dug and searched about for some all the remainder of the evening, but could not find one drop, so that our dejection at this period became excessive, and our terror so great that we expected nothing but death to deliver us. We could not touch our beef, which was as salt as brine, without fresh water, and we were in the greatest terror from the apprehension of wild beasts. When unwelcome night came, we acted as on the night before, and the next morning we set off again from the island in hopes of seeing some vessel. In this manner we toiled as well as we were able till four o'clock, during which we passed several keys, but could not meet with a ship, and still famishing with thirst, went ashore on one of those keys again in hopes of finding some water. Here we found some leaves with a few drops of water in them, which we lapped with much eagerness. We then dug in several places, but without success. As we were digging holes in search of water, there came forth some very thick and black stuff, but none of us could touch it, except the poor Dutch Creole, who drank above a quart of it as eagerly as if it had been wine. We tried to catch fish, but could not and we now began to repine at our fate, and abandon ourselves to despair, when, in the midst of our murmuring, the captain all at once cried out, A sail! A sail! A sail! 
This gladdening sound was like a reprieve to a convict, and we all instantly turned to look at it. But in a little time some of us began to be afraid it was not a sail. However, at a venture we embarked and steered after it, and in half an hour, to our unspeakable joy, we plainly saw that it was a vessel. At this our drooping spirits revived, and we made towards her with all the speed imaginable. When we came near to her, we found she was a little sloop, about the size of a Gravesend hoy, and quite full of people, a circumstance which we could not make out the meaning of. Our captain, who was a Welshman, swore that they were pirates and would kill us. I said, be that as it might, we must board her if we were to die for it, and if they should not receive us kindly, we must oppose them as well as we could, for there was no alternative between their perishing and ours. This counsel was immediately taken, and I really believe that the captain, myself, and the Dutchman would then have faced twenty men. We had two cutlasses and a musket that I brought in the boat, and in this situation we rowed alongside and immediately boarded her. I believe there were about forty hands on board, but how great was our surprise, as soon as we got on board, to find that the major part of them were in the same predicament as ourselves. They belonged to a whaling schooner that was wrecked two days before us, about nine miles to the north of our vessel. When she was wrecked, some of them had taken to their boats, and had left some of their people and property on a quay, in the same manner as we had done, and were going, like us, to New Providence in quest of a ship, when they met with this little sloop called a wrecker. Their employment in those seas being to look after wrecks. They were then going to take the remainder of the people belonging to the schooner, for which the wrecker was to have all things belonging to the vessel, and likewise their people's help to get what they could out of her, and were then to carry the crew to New Providence. We told the people of the wrecker the condition of our vessel, and we made the same agreement with them as the schooner's people, and, on their complying, we begged of them to go to Arki directly, because our people were in want of water. They agreed, therefore, to go along with us first, and in two days we arrived at the quay, to the inexpressible joy of the people that we had left behind, as they had been reduced to great extremities for want of water in our absence. Luckily for us, the wrecker had now more people on board than she could carry or victual for any moderate length of time. They therefore hired the schooner's people to work on our wreck, and we left them our boat, and embarked for New Providence. Nothing could have been more fortunate than our meeting with this wrecker, for New Providence was at such a distance that we never could have reached it in our boat. The island of Abico was much longer than we expected, and it was not till after sailing for three or four days that we got safe to the farther end of it, towards New Providence. When we arrived there, we watered and got a good many lobsters and other shellfish, which proved a great relief to us as our provisions and water were almost exhausted. We then proceeded on our voyage, but the day after we left the island, late in the evening, and whilst we were yet among the Bahama Keys, we were overtaken by a violent gale of wind, so that we were obliged to cut away the mast. The vessel was very near foundering, 
for she parted from her anchors and struck several times on the shoals. Here we expected every minute that she would have gone to pieces, and each moment to be our last, so much so that my old captain and sickly useless mate, and several others, fainted, and death stared us in the face on every side. All the swearers on board now began to call on the God of heaven to assist them, and sure enough, beyond our comprehension he did assist us, and in a miraculous manner delivered us. In the very height of our extremity the wind lulled for a few minutes, and although the swell was high beyond expression, two men, who were expert swimmers, attempted to go to the boy of the anchor, which we still saw on the water, at some distance, in a little punt that belonged to the wrecker, which was not large enough to carry more than two. She filled different times in their endeavours to get into her alongside of our vessel, and they saw nothing but death before them, as well as we, but they said they might as well die that way as any other. A coil of very small rope, with a little boy, was put in along with them, and at last, with great hazard, they got the punt clear from the vessel, and these two intrepid water-heroes paddled away for life towards the boy of the anchor. The eyes of us all were fixed on them all the time, expecting every minute to be their last, and the prayers of all those that remained in their senses were offered up to God on their behalf for a speedy deliverance, and for our own, which depended upon them, and he heard and answered us. These two men at last reached the boy, and having fastened the punt to it, they tied one end of their rope to the small boy that they had in the punt, and sent it adrift towards the vessel. We on board, observing this, threw out boat-hooks and leads fastened to lines, in order to catch the boy. At last we caught it, and fastened a hawser to the end of the small rope. We then gave them a sign to pull, and they pulled the hawser to them, and fastened it to the boy. Which being done, we hauled for our lives, and, through the mercy of God, we got again from the shoals into deep water, and the punt got safe to the vessel. It is impossible for any to conceive our heartfelt joy at the second deliverance from ruin, but those who have suffered the same hardships. Those whose strength and senses were gone came to themselves, and were now as elated as they were before depressed. Two days after this the wind ceased, and the water became smooth. The punt then went on shore, and we cut down some trees, and having found our mast and mended it, we brought it on board and fixed it up. As soon as we had done this we got up the anchor, and away we went once more for New Providence, which in three days more we reached safe, after having been above three weeks in a situation in which we did not expect to escape with life. The inhabitants here were very kind to us, and when they learned our situation showed us a great deal of hospitality and friendship. Soon after this every one of my old fellow-sufferers that were free parted from us, and shaped their course where their inclination led them. One merchant, who had a large sloop, seeing our condition, and knowing we wanted to go to Georgia, told four of us that his vessel was going there, and, 
if we would work on board and load her, he would give us our passage free. As we could not get any wages whatever, and found it very hard to get off the place, we were obliged to consent to his proposal, and we went on board, and helped to load the sloop, though we had only our victuals allowed us. When she was entirely loaded, he told us she was going to Jamaica first, where we must go if we went in her. This, however, I refused, but my fellow sufferers, not having any money to help themselves with, necessity obliged them to accept of the offer, and to steer that course, though they did not like it. We stayed in New Providence about seventeen or eighteen days, during which time I met with many friends, who gave me encouragement to stay there with them, but I declined it, though, had my heart not been fixed on England, I should have stayed, as I liked the place extremely, and there were some free black people here who were very happy, and we passed our time pleasantly together, with the melodious sounds of the catguts, under the lime and lemon trees. At length Captain Phillips hired a sloop to carry him, and some of the slaves that he could not sell, to Georgia, and I agreed to go with him in this vessel, meaning now to take my farewell of that place. When the vessel was ready we all embarked, and I took my leave of New Providence, not without regret. We sailed about four o'clock in the morning, with a fair wind for Georgia, and about eleven o'clock the same morning a short and sudden gale sprung up and blew away most of our sails, and as we were still amongst the keys, in a very few minutes it dashed the sloop against the rocks. Luckily for us the water was deep, and the sea was not so angry but that, after having for some time laboured hard, and being many in number, we were saved through God's mercy, and by using our greatest exertions we got the vessel off. The next day we returned to Providence, where we soon got her again refitted. Some of the people swore that we had spells set upon us by somebody in Montserrat, and others that we had witches and wizards amongst the poor helpless slaves, and that we never should arrive safe at Georgia. But these things did not deter me. I said, Let us again face the winds and seas, and swear not, but trust to God, and He will deliver us. We therefore once more set sail and with hard labour, in seven days' time arrived safe at Georgia. After our arrival we went up to the town of Savannah, and the same evening I went to a friend's house to lodge, whose name was Moser, a black man. We were very happy at meeting each other, and after supper we had a light till it was between nine and ten o'clock at night. About that time the watch or patrol came by, and discerning a light in the house, they knocked at the door. We opened it, and they came in and sat down and drank some punch with us. They also begged some limes of me, as they understood I had some, which I readily gave them. A little after this they told me I must go to the watch-house with them. This surprised me a good deal, after our kindness to them, and I asked them, why so? They said that all negroes who had light in their houses after nine o'clock were to be taken into custody, and either pay some dollars, or be flogged. Some of those people knew that I was a free man, but as the man of the house was not free, and had his master to protect him, they did not take the same liberty with him they did with me, 
I told them that I was a free man, and just arrived from Providence, that we were not making any noise, and that I was not a stranger in that place, but was very well known there. Besides, said I, what will you do with me? That you shall see, replied they, but you must go to the watch-house with us. Now whether they meant to get money from me or not I was at a loss to know, but I thought immediately of the oranges and limes at Santa Cruz, and seeing that nothing would pacify them I went with them to the watch-house, where I remained during the night. Early the next morning these imposing ruffians flogged a negro man and woman that they had in the watch-house, and then they told me that I must be flogged too. I asked why, and if there was no law for free men, and told them if there was I would have it put in force against them. But this only exasperated them the more, and instantly they swore they would serve me as Dr. Perkins had done, and they were going to lay violent hands on me, when one of them, more humane than the rest, said that as I was a free man they could not justify stripping me by law. I then immediately sent for Dr. Brady, who was known to be an honest and worthy man, and on his coming to my assistance they let me go. This was not the only disagreeable incident I met with while I was in this place, for one day, while I was a little way out of the town of Savannah, I was beset by two white men, who meant to play their usual tricks with me in the way of kidnapping. As soon as these men accosted me, one of them said to the other, This is the very fellow we are looking for that you lost, and the other swore immediately that I was the identical person. On this they made up to me, and were about to handle me, but I told them to be still and keep off, for I had seen those kind of tricks played upon other free blacks, and they must not think to serve me so. At this they paused a little, and one said to the other, It will not do, and the other answered that I talked too good English. I replied, I believed I did, and I had also with me a revengeful stick equal to the occasion, and my mind was likewise good. Happily, however, it was not used, and after we had talked together a little in this manner, the rogues left me. I stayed in Savannah some time, anxiously trying to get to Montserrat once more to see Mr. King, my old master, and then to take a final farewell of the American quarter of the globe. At last I met with the sloop called the Speedwell, Captain John Bunton, which belonged to Grenada, and was bound to Martinico, a French island, with a cargo of rice, and I shipped myself on board of her. Before I left Georgia, a black woman, who had a child lying dead, being very tenacious of the church burial service, and not able to get any white person to perform it, applied to me for that purpose. I told her I was no parson, and besides, that the service over the dead did not affect the soul. This, however, did not satisfy her. She still urged me very hard. I therefore complied with her earnest entreaties, and at last consented to act the parson for the first time in my life. As she was much respected, there was a great company, both of white and black people, at the grave. I then accordingly assumed my new vocation, and performed the funeral ceremony to the satisfaction of all present, after which I bade adieu to Georgia, 
and sailed for Martinico. End of chapter 8